Good morning. That was just a check. Good morning. Excellent. A couple of announcements as usual. Connection cards. If you're a first-time visitor, we'd love to hear how you found out about us. Take some time, fill it out. It's in the seat in the back in front of you. Or if you turn around, it'll be behind you. So either way, just look forward and there'll be one there for you. We take those up in the boxes on the right and the left of the sound booth. We also take up a tithe and offering the same way. So whatever you feel led to do, there's envelopes in front of you as well. Just go ahead and put them in that and go into the boxes on the right and the left of the sound booth. Housewarming party today. Get together with everyone at Mark and Michelle Blower's house. It's their new house and we're all invited. Who's invited? Oh. If you don't know how to get there, what are you gonna do? There you go. Because I don't know how to get there. So if you have one of those stickers that says, if you're following me, you're lost too. I'm not following you. Alrighty, and Vacation Bible School. Uh, that's rapidly approaching July 13th through the 17th, 9 a.m. to 12 p.m. If you can volunteer a day or the whole time, see Miss Karen. She needs many, many hands because we know what Sunday School Bible Camp is all about. And that is all I have. Good morning. morning. Darlene, you want to come up? Here, I want you to use this. During worship, I knew the Holy Spirit was speaking to me, and I didn't come up and talk. And then all of a sudden, I look up, and my husband's up there talking about a pit. And I'm like, wow. I need to give God glory for a pit. He took me out of. And I want to give other people hope. A lot of times when we dig pits for ourselves, it isn't even always intentional. Sometimes people just are playing evildoers and, you know, I'm going to be mean, rotten, and do this. Sometimes we dig pits, circumstances of life, our weaknesses, whatever, and we start getting into a pit we can't get out. Um... Rich and I have been married about 38 years, and um, probably the first 20, I did a really good job about <laughs> being in charge of the finances. Very honorable, paid everything off, you know. Somehow, things started snowballing on me the last maybe 10 years or so, and son in college, and my mom was sick with cancer. I was traveling all the time. I mean, there's tons of excuses, but none of it was right. I didn't do right. And I landed us up into terrible debt. Not minor debt, major debt. Rich didn't know anything about it, trusting Solvidius. I had like a giant Ponzi scheme going, <laughs> moving things around from account to account. <laughs> so, there was a day of reckoning when I had to share with Rich, and I honestly didn't know. I was in such a bad pit that I honestly didn't know how my marriage was going to turn out. I didn't know. So I just want you to know that you can be facing a horrible pit, and a few years later, you can look around and say, I can't believe what God's done for me. 
He has helped me more than I could ever believe possible. And I want a lady at work who had gone through this with me four years ago when my crisis hit, she sent me an email that you need to share to give other people hope if they're in pits. That's why I'm doing this today. And I said, okay, I will. If you are in a pit, it doesn't have to be about money. It might be about your marriage, how you treat people, whatever you're doing that's wrong. The Lord wants to give you a chance. There is a day of reckoning. You need to face what you're doing. Do right, and God will help you get out of that pit, whatever it is. He will help you, and he will restore it, and he can bring you to a place that you couldn't possibly believe. I have zero credit card debt. <laughs> And God and my husband helped me. Arlene, thank you for sharing. That took a lot of courage. But I'm sure um, it touched somebody that is dealing with something similar or has dealt or needs to. So let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you for... Uh, Thank you for Darlene, and thank you for her courage and her willingness to open up, to be genuine, to be authentic in her pain and in the work that you have done in her life to, uh, to bring her out of that. Just give you praise for that, Father God. I pray you as well in this message today that uh, I would speak your words and uh, only speak your truth. And give you praise, Father, in advance of all of that, and ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, since this is our last message in this uh, Lessons on Unity series, I thought it might make sense to kind of just start with a recap, you know, sort of that you, it's been five weeks since we began this. And so just to really set the, the table for what we'll talk about today. Um, the first week, we kind of talked about the Trinity and how this idea of the Trinity serves uh, as a model for a multi-ethnic church. Uh, and the reasons were pretty simple. Unity is a part of God, right? Trinity shows us that, that unity is really a part of who he is. Uh, it also can show us that God desires all of us to be in relationship with each other and that the Trinity gives us a basis for believing that. It shows us that God is love. You know, if you'll remember, we used the example of the shack. Um, and again, whether or not you, you know, were okay with all the theology in there, at least that picture of the three uh, members of the Trinity sort of in unity and in relationship with one another is a beautiful picture, I think. And it's one that we can use to draw from and how we're supposed to have relationship with one another as well. And finally, the idea of a divine community, that that's really what the church should be. It kind of brings us to that scripture from uh, Revelation that we quote so often, uh, Revelation 7, 9. You know, a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb. That's what, that's what the church is supposed to look like, not in the future, but now. Okay? The second message was based on the Tower of Babel story. And what we learned in that was this idea <clears throat> that um, unity really was God's original intent. <clears throat> but the problem is that the people were disobedient 
to what he had told them to do, and therefore he was forced to cause their um, their disunity and by changing their language and spreading them out all over uh, the world. And so if we want to really foster the type of an environment here that speaks of unity, then what we've got to do is be obedient to God. And in particular, that means moving beyond our self-interest, right? We're, we're, we're selfish people. And so we need to kind of get beyond that and get into this attitude of, of not, of, of willingly surrendering our own way sometimes. The third message was last week, and we took this picture from Isaiah 11 of the peaceable kingdom. You know, the lion and the, the wolf and the lamb all lying down together. <coughs> and we talked about that not as an interpretation of that scripture necessarily, but that we could use that as a picture of what it would look like when all cultures sat down with one another, where one culture had to surrender their dominance and another culture had to surrender their fear. And that we've got to embrace a certain amount of change if this is to happen. And again, that goes back to self-interest. You know, we've got to be willing to, to say, I, you know, I may not like that as much as I like something else, but I'm willing to accept that because I know it blesses my brother. And the, so that brings us to this week. So how many people here were fans of the series Lost? <laughs> All right, so we have some familiar, familiarity with it. So if you never saw it, essentially what the storyline was, was you have this airplane, Oceanic Flight, 815, nobody remembers. So it crashes on this island. And so a number of the passengers die in the crash, but there are some survivors. And so for really the first eight episodes of this, this TV show, um, the survivors encounter all this strange phenomenon on the island. But they don't really find, there's nobody, they're pretty much by themselves. As far as they can tell, there's this weirdness that's going on, but there aren't any other humans. That is until episode nine. <laughs> and the survivors meet this strange French woman who also lives on the island. And she warns them about the others. And you get the message from the way she says it that the others are not good. Well, obviously, loss takes place in this make-believe world of television. But this concept of the others is really something that's very much a part of our everyday reality. <coughs> you know, whether we're willing to admit it or not, we tend to think, oh, there they are, scary-looking bunch. <coughs> we tend to think in this us-versus-them kind of way of thinking about things. And if you were here on the Wednesday night for that session where I really discussed culture, you might remember that I said there really are six ways that we can respond to different cultures, okay? So you can have xenophobia, which is just a, an outright fear of another culture. 
you can have ethnocentrism, which is um, basically saying that my culture is the best and everyone else is secondary. You can have a forced assimilation where you are, where somebody forces different cultures to get together and you're okay with that as long as the ones that are being forced in adapt to your way of doing things. Essentially, they accept your culture and discard their own. And then finally, there's just outright segregation where you have different races that are just remain physically apart. And the key thing about each one of those is each one of those four thinks in terms of the others, right? There's always a barrier there. <clears throat> it's only when you get to the last two, which, is, which are acceptance <coughs> and celebration, where us versus them becomes we. So this concept of relating to our environment, I guess, as us versus them is not a new thing. It's been going on for thousands of years. And in fact, you might even be surprised to find it's a major theme of the Old Testament. I would draw your attention to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. The Lord had said to Abraham, leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. <coughs> I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. <coughs> I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. From that point on, Abram's family, which eventually becomes the nation of Israel, right, was to be self-contained. So, <clears throat> really, <clears throat> you have God sort of promoting this idea of ethnocentrism, essentially saying you guys are to be separate. Now, one of the ways that this played out was through food laws, through the Jewish food laws. And it wasn't really that the Jews were just not allowed to eat pork. That's kind of how we think of it a lot of the times. If you read in Leviticus, there's just this whole list of meat that they weren't supposed to eat. And so it was these food laws that really served to mark out the Jewish people from their non-Jewish neighbors, the others. It was even reinforced by the fact that they weren't even supposed to eat with non-Jews. They couldn't share table fellowship with them. And the reasoning was pretty clear. The people that you sit down and eat with are family. <clears throat> But since this Jewish family has been called by God to be separate and to bear witness to his special love and grace in the world, they can't compromise themselves by eating with the others. And so with that in mind, I want to look at <clears throat> some scripture for today, which is taken from the book of Acts chapter 10. If 
you've got a Bible, you can follow along. If not, we'll have it up here on the screen for you. <clears throat> All right, so Acts 10, we're going to read from verse 1 through verse 35. In Caesarea, there lived a Roman army officer named Cornelius, who was a captain of the Italian regiment. All right, I'm going to do something I don't normally do. Barnabas, would you help me out here? All right, come here. Got it right here. Would you just read it for me? He was a devout, God-fearing man, as was everyone in his household. He gave generously to the poor and prayed regularly to God. One afternoon, about three o'clock, he had a vision in which he saw an angel of God coming toward him. Cornelius, the angel said. Cornelius stared at him in terror. What is it, sir? He asked. The angel, uh, what is it, sir? He asked the angel. And the angel replied, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have been received by God as an offering. Now send some men to Joppa and summon a man named Simon Peter. He is staying with Simon, a tanner who lives near the seashore. As soon as the angel was gone, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier, one of his personal attendants. He told them what had happened and sent them off to Joppa. The next day, as Cornelius' messengers were nearing the town, Peter went up on the flat roof to pray. It was about noon, and he was hungry. But while a meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw the sky open, and something like a large sheet was left down by its four corners. In the, in the sheet were all sorts of animals, reptiles, and birds. Then a voice said to him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat them. No, Lord, Peter declared, I have never eaten anything that our Jewish laws have declared impure and unclean. Verse 15. But the voice spoke again, Do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. The same vision was repeated three times. Then the sheet was suddenly pulled up to heaven. Peter was very perplexed. What could this? What could the vision mean? Just then, the men sent by Cornelius found Simon's house, standing outside the house. They asked if a ma man named Simon Peter was staying there. Meanwhile, as Peter was puzzling over the vision, the Holy Spirit said to him, Three men have come looking for you. Get up, go downstairs, and go with them without hesitation. Don't worry, for I have sent them. So Peter went down and said, I'm the man you're looking for. Why have you come? They said we were sent 
by Cornelius, a Roman officer. He's a devout and God-fearing man, well-respected by all the Jews. A holy angel instructed him to summon you to his house so that he can hear your message. So Peter invited the men to stay for the night. The next day he went with them accompanied by some of the brothers from Joppa. They arrived in Caesarea the following day. Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered his home, Cornelius fell at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter pulled him up and said, Stand up, I'm a human being just like you. So they talked together and went inside, where many others were assembled. Peter told them, You know it is against our law, against our laws for a Jewish man to enter a Gentile's a Gentile home like like this or to associate with you. But God had shown me that I should no longer think of anyone as impure or unclean. So I came without objection as soon as as soon as I as I was sent for. Now tell me why you sent for me. Cornelius replied, Four days ago I was praying in my house about the same time, three o'clock in the afternoon. Suddenly a man in dazzling clothes was standing in front of me. He told me, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your gifts to the poor have been noticed by God. Now send messengers to Joppa and summon a man named Simon Peter. He is staying in the home of Simon, a tanner who lives near the seashore. So I sent for you at once, and it was good of you to come. Now we, now we are all here, waiting before God to hear the message the Lord has given you. Then Peter replied, I see very clearly that God shows no favoritism. In every nation... He accepts those who fear him and do what is right. What lesson in unity can we learn from the story of Peter and Cornelius? Figures this would happen on the one Sunday we have 35 verses to read. But that's why I thought it might be a better idea to bring in a substitute, so thank you, Barnabas. <laughs> I appreciate that. All right, so what, is, what are the lessons that this story teaches us? Well, I think, first of all, the, the, the big one is Peter has had this exclusionary doctrine up till now, right, where he just, he, you know, he's been a faithful Jew. He <coughs> believes that they are a separate people. And now, all of a sudden, he realizes, wait a minute. I think I've been wrong. And this is a big deal because even though this food law was used by God to highlight this issue to Peter, the roots of prejudice uh, about against the Jews by or against by the Jews against the Gentiles really goes a lot deeper than even this. See, there were a lot of Jews that could tell you stories about the horrible things that the Gentiles did. One of the reasons that some Jews gave for not going into a Gentile house and eating with them was that their houses were polluted because Gentiles forced their women to have abortions and then put the dead fetuses under the floorboards. Now, whether this is true or not, we don't know. 
But what we do know, despite the fact that many Jews and Gentiles did live together peacefully, was that the prejudices remained solidly in place. They did so not the least of all because of this biblical calling of the Jewish people to be separate, to be holy, to stand apart from the rest of humanity so that through them God's light might shine. In other words, when the Jewish people sometimes told these stories about why they shouldn't go to a Gentile's home, this wasn't xenophobia. This wasn't because they were afraid of them. It wasn't this irrational fear that they somehow had of foreigners. I mean, if you read in the New Testament, Paul and the other writers are pretty clear that the Mosaic law forbid this. This was God's word to Israel, and it should be respected as such, and so they did. But Paul and the other authors of the New Testament are equally clear that in light of Jesus, that law was to be seen as God's word for a particular period and for a particular purpose. See, in verse 34, Paul unequivocally states that this whole Judeocentric doctrine that he held to was wrong. He believed that God was only going to favor the Jews, but now he sees that God's got this different plan. Most translations use either, you know, that he shows no partiality or he shows no favoritism to to denote Peter's revelation. The good old King James uses this funky term called he was no respecter of persons. A lot of people struggle with that. I did for the longest time. It's like, what the heck does that mean exactly? Well, it's explained somewhat in James 2, 1 through 4. Now, however you choose, we're going to go to that in a minute, but however you choose to, to translate it, what it's essentially saying is that God was to show favor to no one on account of their rank, their family, their wealth, or partiality arising from any other cause. So for example, which we get in James 2, 1 through 4, a judge would be a respecter of persons when he favors one party over another because they were privately friends or because he's a man of rank or influence or power because he belongs to the same political party or or any of those things. The Jews supposed that they were particularly favored by God and that salvation was not extended to any other nation. And that the fact of just being a Jew is what entitled them to that, that kind of favor. And so what Peter is saying here is that he's learned that doctrine is wrong. And that a man is not to be accepted because he's a Jew and he's not to be excluded because he's a Gentile. The barrier is broken down. The offer is made to everyone that God is going to save them on the same principle. Not by external privilege or rank, but according to their willingness to receive his gift. Second, we see that Peter comes to this understanding that God's... 
that God's desire is for an all-inclusive church. This, his revelation didn't stop with just this recognition that his doctrine was wrong. He now goes on and he perceives that this favor is not confined to the Jew, but it's supposed to be extended to everyone. We see that in verse 35. already there. And so the remarkable circumstances of how this occurred were really what led him to this. He gets a vision. Cornelius gets a vision. Then there's this declaration that the alms of Cornelius to, were, be to, were to be accepted. And so now, <coughs> excuse me, so now Peter is convinced that the favors of God were no longer to be confined just to the Jews, but should be extended to everybody. That's what this whole vision was designed to teach him. And then the ensuing change that it was to bring in his ministry, as well as the other apostles' ministry, just really can't be minimized. One scholar said that this forms the racial challenge of the gospel, that God does not distinguish faces. The body of Christ reaches worldwide. Its members come from every ethnic group, wherever the gospel has been preached. And the final lesson from this is that God was very intentional in dealing with the existing Jewish bias. And I think what stands out in this whole story, as it, especially as it relates to a church who is attempting to bridge those racial and ethnic divides is God's intentionality. See, he gives this corresponding view to a Jew and to a Gentile. He speaks to both of them. And then he arranges for them to get together and compare notes. <laughs> Peter's really left to draw no other conclusion here. I mean, does this sound like happenstance? Does it sound like a coincidence? To me, it's the biblical example that we talked about before of, you know, this wasn't Matthias putting up a sign outside his home saying, all are welcome, which is what we do as a church. Right? We say everybody's welcome, but do we really mean that? Know, what that means in so many cases is you're welcome if, and then we sort of default to that whole forced assimilation thing where you're welcome if you, you'll come in here and you'll be part of us. And so the lesson, I think, in this text is that if we are going to go about attracting the others, it just doesn't happen unless those who are pursuing it get very intentional about making it happen. <clears throat> now, throughout this, the, the entire Lost series, the others were always in opposition to the survivors. So on whatever mysterious island you want to call that in the South Pacific Ocean, there was always an us versus them going on. 
likewise in this land, a land that was dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal, it continues to be us versus them. Saddest of all in the church of Jesus Christ, yes, even there, there has been far too much us versus them. My goal when we began this whole series was at the very least to raise your awareness levels to the need for our church to be a church that contains every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. And at the very most, to motivate you to be an active participant in making that happen. And so with this sermon series, I hope that I have convinced you that unity is God's heart. And that he put his heart on display in this book. And with this sermon series, I hope that I have convinced you that with approximately 33,000 Christian denominations in the word, world, the church needs to go back and read this book. And with this sermon series, I hope I have convinced you that Harmony Vineyard should join a growing number of churches across the country who have said enough is enough to us versus them. Think for a moment about this. Why is it that individuals get very excited to go and visit another country and experience a new culture, but turn around and resist people from other places bringing their culture into the church? Why? One of the things that has stuck with me through all of the many books that I've read was a portion of one book where an author interviewed people from several churches that were multi-ethnic. Every one of the people she talked to said they could never go back to a church that was not diverse. They had gotten to a place where the others had become their brothers and sisters. And it felt more natural, more authentic to them than a church where everybody was the same. And so my prayer today is that God would make this place like those places. A big, robust family where every other is welcomed and celebrated like a brother from another mother. <laughs> or sister. And where together we can go about doing our Father's business and building the kingdom. Amen. We had that the conference here yesterday that we've been talking about for about a month. And so she wanted to share a little bit about, um, about that. First of all, I want to just publicly thank all of you guys for letting us use the building. Uh, God truly blessed yesterday, and I'm sorry that some of you guys weren't there. Um, I, w I will give this testimony. I had um, a person that had been doing some things in the background, and, um, and 
for some reason, it was on my heart just to give them a love offering. And um, I had given it to him like midday at the conference. And um, at the end of the service, he came back around and tears were in his eyes. And, and I said, is everything okay? And he said, I can't take this love offering because you, through this conference, have given me my life back. And that's what it's all about. Um, sometimes we don't realize how indirectly we affect other people's lives. And we have to remember that God is in each, every one, each and every one of us. And that when we come in contact with others, the things that we do, the things that we say will affect others around us. And it either can take the, or, or it, it can either let the light dwell down or it can make the light be brighter. And in his case, his light was, was affected where it was much brighter. We gave life back to one person. And I wanted to share that with you guys because I know some people here wanted to come. Some people just, it, it was just not even on their radar. But I wanted to share, with you, share that with you because your house was a venue for someone's life to come back. And so I think that's important to hear, for you to hear that. So thank you again so much. Well, and I'm reasonably sure it wasn't just one person. I know. <laughs> <laughs> he was there. He was there. He was like, oh, no. It wasn't just one person. No, I can, I can tell you for sure it wasn't just one person. <laughs> there were many. There were many. Uh, let's stand. If I could have the prayer team uh, come up <coughs> and be available at the front. And I, what really struck me was that if, if what Darlene said this morning, if that issue resonated with you, then I want you to go to one of these folks that are up here um, for prayer. So if, if anything that she said, really, that's kind of what I felt like God wanted me to share at this point, was that if anything that, you know, that she was speaking about really touched you in some way or uh, quickened something in you, then go and get prayer for that today. That's God's way of wanting you to to deal with something that maybe you've been avoiding. All right, so let's pray. We're going to pray a blessing, and then uh, we're going to have a song, and then we will be dismissed. So, Father, I thank you again for, uh, for this day, for all of these dear people that are here with us. Thank you for being here. Thank you for blessing us. Thank you for the wisdom and the words. Lord, I pray that each and every person here will, will take this message to you to, that you have given them and take it out into the world. Open their eyes to see those places where a touch uh, from you is needed. And then give them the boldness to respond in love, with a word of encouragement, of prayer, or just the fact of sharing what Jesus has done for them. Bless them all as they leave this place until we have the chance to be together again. All of this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.